Welcome to Ed Spark 21, the podcast from Battelle for Kids, dedicated to capturing conversations and spreading the word to advance 21st century deeper learning for every student. In this episode, Battelle for Kids president and CEO, Dr. Karen Garza, talks with Dr. Sarah Fine, a faculty member at the High Tech High Graduate School of Education, and Dr. Jao Mehta, a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Over the course of six years, Sarah Fine and Jal Mehta conducted a comprehensive study of 30 of the most effective public high schools in the United States. I asked them to join me to discuss their findings, which are represented in their new book, In Search of Deeper Learning, The Quest to Remake the American High School. Here's our conversation. Hi, Joel. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. And we're looking forward to the conversation with you today. Us too. Thanks for having us. Can't wait, Karen. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Um, You're both co-authors of the book, In Search of Deeper Learning, The Quest to Remake the American High School. And this has been on a number of reading lists that I've recommended to other people because I really love the book. I thought it was so well done. So for people who've not read your book, which by the way, I would highly recommend you run out and order it right now, but for people who haven't read it, how would you describe your book and what you were both trying to accomplish as authors? I mean, I think at base we were, um, at least where we ended up was trying to figure out where there's deep or powerful learning going on in American schools, particularly high schools, and then thinking about Um, On the whole, we argue that's kind of the exception to the rule. It's not something that never happens. If you have kids, you probably, your kid probably comes home and talks about a particular teacher or extracurricular or activity. There's probably something in their day that um, is um, challenging, interesting, motivating, et cetera, but it's probably not the norm. And Mm -hmm. so the big question we were sort of grappling with in the book is like, why is that? And uh, what, what could we do about it? I think our, our work, I characterize it a little bit as like an odyssey or a quest. Uh, like, I, I think it's not an, an overstatement to say that Jal and I kind of went out thinking that it would be fairly easy to find what we were looking for, which, which like you said, was, you know, deep, powerful, authentic, sticky learning for kids. And we saw a lot of it, but we, we didn't find it as concentrated in schools as we thought we might. Um, and so, you know, we ended up just like seeking far and wide and finding all of these pockets of the the K-12 universe where all of this incredible work was happening, but also realizing that it's not happening as systematically as we had hoped. And so our questions became very much like, well, what what would it take to to, to do that um, for more kids more of the time? So what is that? I mean, why do you think this has eluded us so much? Why are we, you know, why is this traditional model so deeply entrenched in our psyche as educators and as, as in educational systems? Why is there not more deeper learning? That's a, that's a huge question and certainly became one of the core questions of our project. Um, our, our colleague, our late colleague, David Cohen, who is a, an incredible support to us, has written amazing stuff about pretty much everything in education. He helped us on this front um, because, you know, we, we have kinds of very technical reasons why I think folks in the education world know all of the barriers and constraints to deeper learning, right? We have testing, we have um, state mandates, we have tracking, we have curriculum guides, all the things. We we have too many kids, too short a time with them. But David Cohen also helped us see the big picture and think about the fact that 
the tradition of thinking about teaching as telling or professing uh, and the sort of orientation that makes us think of learners as empty vessels into which knowledge has to be dumped, which obviously is not conducive to, to deeper learning, that that tradition is actually very, very long. Uh, and, you know, he, he would trace it back like 2000 years, at least in the Western world. Um, and that the, the tradition of sort of constructivist, authentic, student-centered learning, at least in formal schools, is much shorter than that. It's really maybe 100 years old. Although, of course, if you look outside of schools, you can see all kinds of imprints beyond that. But the idea that like inside of the walls of a school, we should be giving kids authentic experiences and we should be connecting to what they already know and understand and who they want to be, that that is actually a fairly recent development. And so it's helpful for me because it's like, all right, we're, we're all pretty young at this work. And, and there's a lot of things we need to figure out about how to reorganize our structures to support it. And not a lot of us have experienced it ourselves. And we just don't have these this deep repository of, of examples to draw on. And so I think part of the work is, is building that so that more people are seeing it and, and experiencing it and putting that sort of as a, as a compass for what they're trying to do. Yeah, I might, I agree with all of that. Um, just to make it a little more concrete, you know, most people uh, teach as they were taught. So most people experienced a fairly traditional education. And so then when they go on to become teachers, it's not surprising that they re, uh, produce that. And then the, then the curriculum that they're given, the structure of um, dividing things up by subjects and into small blocks. Uh, teachers told us that the three biggest constraints to doing deeper, deeper learning were um, state tests, uh, district pacing guides and teacher evaluation systems. So a lot of the external forces are arrayed against it. And then a lot of that's about constraints. You might think about this as sort of constraints and omissions. Mm -hmm. uh, we're also missing, if we wanted to disrupt that, we would need you know, teacher education to be different, the way that people led schools to be different. Like we need some significant force that would change things from the way in which they, they were. And so we saw that sometimes, we saw some school leaders who were able to do that. We saw departments that had done that. We saw individual teachers who had done that, um, but like writ large, um, mm -hmm. that, that sort of disruptive force hasn't, hasn't come into being. So when we work with school systems, and a sense that you probably have observed the same is when educational leaders are intentional about re-examining the overall system, the structures that are in place, and in, and go about disrupting that or changing that in a way that cultivates deeper learning for all students. It actually can happen even in in the world of these constraints. Um, and, and what would you say about, about that when, when in, in your experiences? Sure. So um, I think you've worked with a number of districts that have done that. Um, I've been working with a number of districts that are trying to do that kind of work. I mean, I think at a really fundamental level, um, we need to think about purpose. Um, you know, like, okay, so like Sarah and I each have kids like, what are we really hoping for those kids by the time they graduate from high school? Like, 
We want them to be thoughtful. We want them to be critical thinkers. We want them to be able to write, but we also want them to be empathetic citizens. We want them to collaborate. We want them to think broadly about the world and their place in it and their role and shaping a better world and all those sorts of things. And I think that list is like fairly uncontroversial. Like, mm-hmm. um, and when you ask people about this, you know, the particulars differ, but often people say some version of what I just said. Um, And then if you look at how kids actually spend their time, it's not really aligned with what I just said. Mm -hmm. Like it's aligned as if like the most important thing was that they know like all the like, you know, emperors and like Chinese dynasties or like all of the intricacies of like the parts of the cell or whatever it is. And so like, it's not that there's not a role for understanding world history or understanding biology, but it's like the balance is off. Like we're too invested mm-hmm. in the details and we're not sort of zooming out and thinking about the qualities we're sort of cultivating in our young people. And so I think that the process that you all use, the sort of portrait of a graduate process where you ask a community to come together and think about like, what do you really want for young people is a really good starting point for um, moving to a different way of doing schooling. We believe that conversation with the community is so important because it's really uh, unpacking the why, which it's, you know, it's one thing if you go into a district and you say, hey, let's do things differently and let's move ahead and let's do these things without having a conversation with the community. And then they'll wonder, why is that school district doing those things? And so we find that if you have these deep conversations in your community around how the world has changed and the implications then for our young people and the education that they experience in their own communities, it's like, man, the community will really rally around you because first and foremost, a lot of this initial work came from the business community saying we can't hire the workforce we need today. So if we fundamentally really want to prepare students for success in in their lives, both in their personal lives and in, the, in their work lives, we, we do have to think more intentionally about this intersection between content knowledge and 21st century skills or deeper learning. So we, we think the why is really important to, to unpack with the community uh, as part of this. So um, with that said, you know, the, the deeper learning, we all know that there are pockets, you certainly found that in your research, pockets of deeper learning, particularly in the extracurricular um, kinds of band and theater and drama and, and, and a lot of that, but sometimes you also found it in the, in the traditional content areas. But tell us a little bit about what you observed for students that are farthest from opportunity, at-risk learners, uh, students of color, um, with regard to access to really deeper learning experiences. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not a rosy picture. I think folks in the field would know that. Um, Mostly what we saw was that it was the same patterns, but they were amplified. They were, they, were much, they were much more extreme for students who are further from opportunity. So like Jill and I spent some time, for example, in a very large sort of um, urban public high school, drawn from a lot of neighborhoods around the city, um, lots of different racial identities, ethnic identities, and so on. And unfortunately, when we would walk into a classroom, we didn't actually have to ask, like, what quote unquote track is this? What level mm-hmm. of class are we seeing? Even though this was a high school of 2,500 students, we knew automatically from the, the color of the faces of the kids, right? The white and Asian students were in the, the classes where 
um, that were labeled as honors or, or IB or double honors or, or what, what have you. And then, you know, the students with all the black, the classes with all the black, black and brown students were the ones where um, they were being marked as, as low tracked or academically lagging and so on. And what we saw happening paralleled, right? Like the expectations that teachers were able to hold for those students varied, you know, based on, on what was going on in the class. And so in the higher track classes, we did not see powerful learning all the time. Like, I want to be really clear about that. Yep. But mm -hmm. often what we saw in those spaces was some version of like analytic discourse. Kids were, you know, analyzing the meaning of, you know, a symbol in a Shakespeare play or so on. Um, but also not a lot of opportunities for, for rich sense making, a, a very sort of strong culture of scrambling for grades and competition, mm -hmm. a sense that like the teacher is looking for us to perform, not necessarily to learn and so on. So, so there were real problems in those spaces too, with, with some notable exceptions. Um, and then in the, in the classes that were, were quote unquote lower tracked, I mean, literally if you tried to map out what was happening in terms of like Bloom's taxonomy or Marzano or depth of knowledge, any of those, you were almost always at the bottom. It was like recall, regurgitation, um, find the main idea over and over and over again. So decontextualize skill building. Um, and it was really disheartening because those are the students for whom school already is a place where they feel them or they feel that their identities are being celebrated and reflected. And there's a really culture of, of deficit stance. Like, oh, these kids can't read. So clearly they can't do anything interesting until we can teach them how to read. Whereas I, I think Joel and I would argue based on our experiences and also some of the really skillful, exceptional teachers we saw is that it should be inverted, right? Like the students mm -hmm. who are furthest from opportunity most need opportunities to do authentic work and to feel that they have, they're being treated as capable, creative humans. And yes, they also need to get better at reading and we also need to address that foundational skill gap, but that should not preclude asking those kids to do real work that, that has consequence. And in fact, they're they're hungriest for it in some ways, um, hungrier, I think, than students who see themselves going to college and so on. Yeah, so if I could just pick up where Sarah left off. I mean, I think sometimes people think like um, project-based learning and other more constructivist inquiry-oriented ways of learning are fine for kids whose parents like provide a lot of cultural capital, dominant cultural capital at home and um, less so for kids where that's not the case. And I, we really um, saw something close to, close to the opposite of that, namely that it was, you know, for upper middle class students, their education was not that thrilling or engaging, but they kind of knew how to play the game and there were really strong social and community pressures to go to college. And so like there was just like huge wasted potential because people were going through motions for long periods of time without really much intrinsic motivation or connection to what they were learning or why. But in terms of like, they were gonna get to college and onto like some sort of middle-class occupation. But those same emotions of feeling kind of alienated from the work, not seeing meaning and purpose in students without um, similar kinds of supports and then also the problem was often worse because the curriculum didn't, you know, um, include um, positive instances of um, people of color or was um, limited to Black History Month or Rosa Parks or just like a sort of like really non-rich vision of what it could mean to do um, culturally responsive teaching and pedagogy. 
um, that the consequence for those students was dropping out of school. Um, um, and so like the, the same kind of disengagement led to sort of much greater consequences among students who had sort of fewer uh, financial resources to work with. And when teachers had the most success with students who were disaffected, it was often because they'd sort of like changed up from the traditional process. They built strong relationships. They'd found ways mm -hmm. for students to do meaningful work that was connected to things that they cared about and things like that. You know, I, I think sometimes we, we um, characterize this as a false dichotomy that, you know, students that are struggling learners or have some skill deficits, that we can't also offer these rich, deeper learning experiences and not also provide opportunities for them to, um, you know, cultivate a skill where they might need to need some additional work. It's like, you know, and I don't know how we got to the point where we think, you know, at-risk learners need this low-level, uninspired uh, teaching opportunity, you know, teaching and learning experience when we know the opposite is true with regard to the brain research around how all human beings learn best. And so, you know, I feel like if we can get back to what we know about how human beings learn, children and adults alike, that we can meet the needs of at-risk learners and also the needs of all learners in, all, across the spectrum. I think that's gonna be a particularly relevant issue in, over this next year because, um, there's a lot of talk about learning loss and mm -hmm. potentially summer school, or you know, next year we might have a sort of repeat of like what we had under No Child Left Behind, where there's sort of like double math and reading. And uh, I, to your false dichotomy point, I would just encourage people to think really sort of sensibly and concretely about like both: are you building student skills, but also are you encouraging their motivation to want to do this kind of work. So sure, if, a, you know, if some students are, you know, um, have a lot of, you know, if, if you've got young students who really would have benefited this year from being physically in school and they're really struggling with reading, like I'm not saying like go study the butterflies for like months on end, like, yes, you should work on reading, but like you can work on reading in the context of books that kids are interested in and you can connect that to discussions or things that they write or make. So like, they're just sort of like ways to do kind of two for one. And um, I really, I think there is definitely a risk that um, we kind of, that kids who like quote unquote lost the most get sort of like plunked into the least stimulating environments from like trying to, um, out of good intentions and kids where there wasn't as much learning loss continue to get sort of richer and more interesting curriculum and opportunities. And I think we should fight against that. I totally agree with you, Joel. And, and that is a concern for me as well, because I'm already starting to hear it. You know, people saying we need to double down on these, these models that have really never really worked well for at-risk learners or struggling learners. And it's like, why don't we try something different and let's let the majority of their experiences, yes, we're going to have to spiral and we're going to have to enhance some skill development and in some certain areas. But I, I totally agree. I think we can embed within within these rich experiences opportunity to also develop those skills. And I think our students, our risk learners, would be more engaged, more excited about learning. Uh, and I think overall they would do much better. But Sarah, I know you probably wanted to weigh in on that as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I occupy a very particular corner of the universe. So I, I work um, for the High Tech High Graduate School of Education, which is associated with um, High Tech High as a network of charter schools, which is fully project-based, number one. So that connects to this idea of like doing authentic work and um, kind of sequencing and packaging learning inside of hopefully these authentic trajectories where kids are actually making and producing and performing their learning in ways that feel authentic to them um, and that skill development happens inside. And mm -hmm. Haidekai also is um, socioeconomically and racially diverse uh, linguistically as well. So by design, we have students who come from, you know, all across uh, San Diego's communities, which is very unusual for a set of public schools um, because of residential segregation. So what I've seen, interestingly, is that in distance learning, one of the things that has been dropped or, or teachers are struggling to figure out how to do is the project piece. Um, and I think it's, to, to Joel's point, it's interesting to me because, you know, of all the schools I've ever seen and spent time observing at or working in, like, High Tech High is the most committed dogmatically, I think, to the idea that, like, authenticity comes first and then you create authentic opportunities for learning and for, for kids to really be producers of knowledge and producers of things that have value in the world, then you have a, a platform for embedding skill development. But even our teachers are, are really worried about this, this learning loss piece and the skill gap and like, how do we make sure that our kids are still learning phonics and, and developing as readers and so on. And so it's gonna be really interesting to see what happens next year, because I think at least the teachers I work with are terrifically, I think, committed to this idea of, of projects and also really, you know, perplexed and, and concerned as I think a lot of us are about what's happening, especially to students who don't have a lot of at-home support, right? Mm -hmm. Like my kids who, who go to high tech, um, they're going to be okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like we joke that, you know, this is the year where like they're getting really good at piano and surfing and maybe not better at reading and math, but, you know, we, you know, as the children of highly educated family with, you know, high social capital, I'm under no illusions that this is going to be devastating for them. But it also feels like the kids in my, my students' classes and my adult student teachers' classes who are really experiencing a lot of trauma this year, they're the ones who most need to reconnect to school, right? Like, mm -hmm. like it's just, it's again, it's like a, an extension of the patterns that always exist, but I, I suspect they're going to be even stronger next year. Like these are, those are the kids who never turn their cameras on. And those are the kids who are not mm -hmm. even necessarily showing up to school or logging into school as it were. And next year, there's going to be so much pressure on schools to like, you know, make up for this learning loss. But it actually feels to me like the thing that's most important is to help kids reconnect with what it means to another. be a human in a space. Yeah. Yes. I mean, like, yeah. I think they're desperate for it and they need it. And I'm, curious and intrigued about how it's all going to play out. You know, it, these are the concerns, I think, that are legitimate concerns that we really had to pay attention to. At the same time, I think there's some things that are promising. You know, as we work with school uh, superintendents and their communities in developing these portraits of a graduate all across the country in 45 different states, it's interesting in the lab, we, we use a system that we developed so we can track the data behind the scenes. And what we're seeing over the last five years, even before COVID, we were seeing that empathy was coming up in the top top 10 consistently, you know, along with the four C's, obviously, and some other things like that, um, you know, global citizen in the four C's, you know, communication, collaboration, creativity, et cetera, but empathy. And I thought that's really, I think something affirming about that, that people are recognizing that we do need to care about one another. And there are things that we can do to help 
young people cultivate that uh, moving forward. Totally agree. And I think um, before you were saying that, you know, the kinds of 21st century skills we're talking about will be important in kids' um, personal lives and for them to get good jobs. And I was thinking, yes and yes. And then the third part is they need to be good citizens. Contributors. And contributors. Contributors, yeah. And, you know, pretty much all of the problems we're facing out there in the world require as like uh, as a starting point empathy perspective taking sort of systems thinking loosely like you know being able to see holes as well as parts and being able to see things from different perspectives and so those seem like really important qualities to cultivate in uh in young people so as as leaders are thinking already right now about this coming the next school year and Sarah, you alluded to this a little bit. What what would be your counsel or your advice for the things that they should be thinking about in terms of the response to you know lessons learned over this past year, you know, kind of our response to these learning gaps that you know are are legitimately concerning. I'm not dismissing them, but legitimately concerning. Um, how might we use this moment in time? To create the, you know, I know a lot of people, and I'm one of those, we don't want to go back to what was because what was was so flawed. But there is this moment in time. Well, first of all, we've learned that we can be, we can change faster than we what we thought many thought we could. You know, I mean, there were so many people who said we could never go one-to-one overnight or we could never go virtual overnight. There, there's so many things that we recognize we can learn. So what are the other lessons learned in this moment? And how can that you know, point us in the right direction as we think about next the next school year. Um, I've been starting to think a lot about what should we amplify and what mm. could we hospice. So, like, I like the, I like the way you put that. I'm gonna I might steal that from you. What um what what is actually going well this year? And I think on my list would be teachers just have have had more contact with students and their families and have a just sort of a deeper sense of what their home lives are like and understand viscerally that it really needs to be a partnership with students and their families if things are going to work well. Um, Some teachers have reported that um, they've actually built deeper relationships this year just because they're not kind of like rushing from one thing to another the way that they are um, in school. So anyway, so like, what are some of the things that you want to amplify? And then like, what are the things that like, no one is asking to return to? Like, when we go back next year, like what don't people, what are people not looking forward to? And I think if I were a school or district leader, I, I think I would, I, I do not think it's realistic to like make all of these changes by next year. I think that, um, significant changes require a lot of energy and time from teachers among others. And I think teachers are exhausted. Uh, I'll just think that is, is a fact. Um, and, um, and so, but I think I would sort of plant these seeds and ask people like to start thinking about these questions. And then I would try to make some concrete changes uh, going into the beginning of next year. But then I would just try to keep this conversation going through next year that like, as we came back, like, what are we doing that we don't actually want to be doing? And then 
sort of gradually make make some of the changes. Yeah, I would I would echo first of all the first part around like connecting with families and and communicating mm -hmm. not just not one way communication either. That's one thing I've been incredibly impressed with as a parent and also as somebody who's working with teachers and student teachers is like there's been so much more responsiveness, like reaching out to families and saying, okay, we've been doing this for two weeks. How is it working for you? How's it working for your kid? We're going to adjust. Um, and that sort of feedback loop where there's transparency around what's actually happening, quote unquote, in the classroom. Uh, and then there's real, a real feedback loop that's being taken seriously versus like the once a year survey sent to parents and only 20% respond. That's, that feels to me like a very important shift. Mm -hmm that I would love, I mean, even as a parent, I have experienced on occasion school as being a little bit of a black box and, you know, I can choose to trust what's going on, but I love the fact that it's not right now. And so I think that's, that's one, one celebration. And then another one smaller, but I think important is there are a small, but real number of kids who are thriving with distance learning, um, who are more introverted, who find it easier to process things in writing, for example, and find it easier maybe to contribute, for example, by chat or drawing or write. There's a lot of realities that some teachers are playing with that aren't always available in person. Um, and, I, and I think we should pay attention to those cases because I think that those, those kids show up to real school too, but they often fly under the radar or they're, they're labeled as struggling or um, as sort of non-participants. And when we give them these other options, these other ways to participate, they just, they wake up. And so I wonder, you know, we have all this technology at our fingertips now, and I'm not sure, I'm, I am desperate for us to get back to face-to-face -face school. And I think we could probably hold on to some of the ways that we've learned how to offer a lot of things for, for access and engagement to kids, um, even once we're back in class. And, you know, and I am hearing that from superintendents who said, you know, I've learned a lot during this period of time. First of all, I've learned that if I use technology and some virtual tools that I can get higher levels of engagement in my broader community and with parents. Um, and they're, they're going to say, they're, you know, don't expect all parents to come to some meeting at a certain time at night when so many things are going on. So I, I do think there are things that we can move into next year that were certainly successes, uh, maybe unexpected successes to some extent, right, that worked, worked for us. I agree with you. I think there's a way for us to offer some blended opportunities for students that we know have never fit the traditional model, have never felt comfortable in a traditional model of schooling. That's why, you know, these alternative models of schooling uh, have existed, but, you know, that sometimes they aren't available to some, some students. And so blended models, I think, would be something that we all see that we can do now. I agree. And I think teachers, you know, there was a lot of discussion around flipped classrooms pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of teachers were like, what's that? Why would I do that? But now they have a lot more experience putting asynchronous materials online. And so, you know, coupling that with um, using the time in person to have discussions when you pre-record the lectures or whatever the content you want students to, to look at for homework mm -hmm. or, um, should look a lot more possible. Um, I also have a thought on the learning loss question. I think that um, the key with that is not to be one size fits all and to really think carefully about who the different learners are in the system and what they need. I think for the students that I would be most 
kind of concerned about in a typical learning loss situation would be struggling readers, students in like first and second grade, who this was the time where they would have been learning to read and are having trouble learning to read basically on their own. And I think like, you know, giving over more time, hiring specialists, um, you know, working really carefully on that makes a lot of sense to me. If you're like a sixth grade student and your teacher covered, you know, less social studies curriculum than they would in a normal year, I don't think we should try to make that up next year. I think we should just sort of like accept that that's gone and just move on to the next thing so that we don't get so uh, rushed and compressed. And then if you're an 11th grade student and, you know, maybe you were, you know, counting on an internship, which was going to lead to, um, you know, community college and an associate's degree, and that internship wasn't there uh, because of COVID, like, you have a totally different set of problems than the second grader who needs mm-hmm. more. So I just think that like there, it, it appears there's gonna be some money available um, via COVID relief. And so schools and superintendents will have some additional funds to play with. And the people that I've been talking to, I've been encouraging them to sort of do some sort of needs assessment, organize things into some buckets and think about like who needs what, and then also to use some of it for innovation. Like it is an opportunity Mm -hmm. to try some different things and some new things. And when you have more money, that's usually an opportunity to try some things because there's less scarcity. So I I think that's, that's one way that folks should be thinking about this. So what I heard you say was like prioritization, right? Really focus on the things that are really important, you know, like the foundational reading skills, like your example personalization, really focus on the individual needs of students, but then really use some of that to also think differently and innovate. And so I really like that. I want to talk a moment about this prioritization. Do you think this might be a moment in time where we can really think differently about our curriculum as a as school districts? And, you know, the curriculum coverage is a very antiquated notion, um, and it does make teachers feel really pressed. I've got to cover the curriculum, you know, maybe this is a time that we can really step back and think, okay, what are the real essential skills in this curriculum, the content within curriculum and, and better narrow it? you have comments or suggestions about that? I mean, yes. I mean, long before COVID, I think we, we certainly noticed and confirmed through our research that the strongest teachers were the ones who felt unapologetic about going deep. Mm-hmm. Um, and not, and they weren't, they weren't ditching content. I think that's a, sometimes people assume that, you know, oh, they're just focusing on skills. No, they weren't. But, mm-hmm. but they, you know, if they, if they want kids to really understand, for example, how social movements generate momentum, like you don't have to study every social movement since the dawn of time. You can go deeply into one and then let kids pick another one. Che- to compare one. Yeah. Fast. And, mm-hmm. um, so, so certainly I think that depth component is really important. I was going to say, and this is a curriculum comment as well, that one of the other things I've been excited about during COVID watching teachers is, is different teaming and different the, the teachers have gotten really creative about organizing time and people and who teaches what for how long to how many kids. Um, I've seen teachers collaborate with folks that they wouldn't and break up the, the curriculum or the, the set of disciplines they're working on in different ways. Um, so for example, at the elementary school level, I've seen much deeper teaming where you have like, you know, all three third grade teachers who loosely collaborated beforehand. Each of them is going really deep into one subject area and, and working with 
you know, small groups of kids throughout the whole day on that subject area because it makes their lives easier, but also they then have a bird's eye view of the whole and they get to work with every single kid and they can really make informed decisions about like who needs what and, and when. And then also like curriculum wise with um, at the high school level, I've seen at least in the schools that I'm closest to teachers because A, they wanna limit screen time and B, they really wanna build deep relationships with kids. They've naturally gravitated to some of the practices Jal and I saw in some of the strongest schools where it's like one or two teachers working for an intensive three or four weeks on a given curriculum module with kids with a smaller group. And it's like, okay, we're gonna cycle through eight groups over the course of the year, but we're gonna go really deep and have a lot of time with them every day. And we're gonna to work towards something at the end. Um, and that has a lot of advantages, not just because you know, you're working with fewer kids, you get to know them, you have more time to play with, but also they get to do the same thing over and over and refine it over time. Uh, in a way where if you're teaching like one giant year long course to 120 kids all year long, you don't, you don't really get a do over until the next year. And so I, I've seen some sort of innovation and refinement just by virtue of like what people are perceiving as necessary COVID wise. And, and I would hope that some of that is preserved next year, that sense of like, you know, let's play with the structure um, and, and see how the structure can serve our ends versus just feeling locked into a structure that's been around forever. I mean, so I think sorry go ahead go ahead no go ahead Joel. well i was just gonna say well one we were talking about this on twitter and somebody posted an article from 1955 arguing that um if you really wanted to go deep we needed to move away from coverage uh so just to say this is a like recurring <laughs> theme of uh, things that we should think well, about well, and we treat it all you know we treat all of the content almost of equal importance you know and that's um, that's another challenge with that too and then I just, you know, we say this a lot, but just to sort of like give an illustration, you know, we were um, talking with a, a history teacher and he said, you know, my students who are mostly African-American and Latino students, um, that they were doing, uh, uh, it was an American history course and they started, you know, with the founders and students got really interested in the question of like the founders and slavery and like, what did it mean for the country to be kind of built on this contradiction? And he said, you know, earlier in my career, I would have said like, yeah, but we only have two weeks for this, like mm -hmm. we need to move on. And he's like, but with more experience, I learned that like, if students are really interested in and excited about that issue, like that issue like speaks to huge kind of conundrums that the country is still grappling with like into the present day. So. We spent more time learning about it. We looked at different perspectives on that question. Uh, students did some research on the sort of way that the, the history of that contradiction had run through our nation. And as a result, like he's like, I looked at the whole year and I decided that there were like some other things that could get less attention to create more space for that. And I, mm -hmm. I think it would be really hard to argue that like, that's not a good decision. And no, so, I, I actually think it's great. <laughs> it's great. But a lot of teachers are fearful of that. And so, the, you know, I think that's why the overall system has to make it okay and give support and guidance and, you know, and really invite teachers to approach it in that way and a really reasoned, because I think our teachers are really smart about these things, but we've created all these pressures that, you know, and almost these systems of punishment, if you, you know, in some ways, or it feels like it to some extent, these outside forces, but well, I know we need to kind of wrap up our conversation. So I'm going to, I'm going to go back to, you know, Jal and I were had a, had a brief conversation just yesterday about 
how, you know, you and Sarah have been, you know, thought leaders in the space of deeper learning and equity and 21st century learning for some time. Our organization has been in that same space around really helping support and really uh, cultivate this kind of a different approach to thinking about teaching and learning and education in general. And you, you mentioned that you're seeing that maybe it's a time, it's time has come. So what are you hopeful about in, in the coming years about deeper learning, you know, 21st century learning, you know, this content and skills together and equity? What are you hopeful about? I can, I can start. I think there's a lot to be hopeful about. Um, but one particular piece of that puzzle that we haven't talked about much is the pressures that liberal arts colleges and, and elite um, colleges sort of exert on the whole system because so many of our school systems are looking to higher ed to think about like, okay, what do our kids need to, to be and be able to do by, by the end of high school? And so there's been quite a real, I think a real, it's, it's early phase, but there's been a real effort and growing awareness, I think, in the higher ed community around the way that admissions requirements and what they're looking mm -hmm. at and admissions can have this sort of trickle-down effect on schools. And, and for example, at Harvard, the Making Care in Common work, really trying to think about at the highest level, right, the schools that everybody's looking to in, in at least in sort of upper middle class communities, how do we try to shift our priorities from kids doing everything to kids doing one or two things really well or kids providing value to their communities or their families, mm -hmm. even if it's not uh, quote unquote extracurriculars. And then I think also the, um, there's the, uh, what's it called? The Master the Mastery Transcript Consortium. So mm -hmm. there's ways in which schools are thinking about how do you gauge what students have learned in ways that are uh, richer and more narrative and more qualitative and less sort of numerical and, and reductive than a GPA or an SAT score. So I, I do actually really think that if we could sustain that work, that is a very powerful lever. I, I mean, I think that one of the ways that families and school leaders and, and superintendents and so on feel hamstrung, like they want all of this for their kids, but one of their big sticking points is that like we can't move away from what we're doing and from the coverage and from the APs until colleges have other ways of valuing what our students are learning. And so I, I, I see that as one bright spot for sure. And there certainly has been some movement in that area. It's some of the examples that you you brought up. So Joel? Yeah, I'll point to two, one kind of domestic and one international. Um, internationally, if you follow what's happening with the uh, OECD mm -hmm. and the way in which they are trying to emphasize um, you know, student competencies as opposed to mm -hmm. curriculum coverage. Um, I think there's um, increasing momentum for this around the world and increasing recognition that our systems are too um, dehumanizing and not focused enough on essential characteristics. And so um, when Sarah and I started, I think we were pretty US focused and we have found there's a lot of appetite for this deeper learning work uh, around the world. Everybody's confronting with some version of like, we have a hundred year old industrial age schools and it's not working that well, especially for our, um, you know, it, within our stratified societies for whoever is on the bottom rungs of that stratification for historical uh, reasons. Um, so that's one, I think there is definitely some international push 
And then I think that the, um, the Black Lives Matter movement and the emphasis on equity, which has really entered our space. Um, when I was sort of starting out in this field, equity meant like closing gaps and test scores. And I think there's just sort of like a much wider recognition that um, test scores are sort of like a symptom of um, a broader bias in our education and um, that we're trying to build meaningful learning experiences, which are powerful and create belonging and help people to invest their identity. Um, there's a lot more talk about, you know, black and brown excellence and uh, histories of that and black literary societies or African-American schools uh, in the South pre-segregation. So there's just sort of like much more recognition of the sort of rich traditions of learning in different mm -hmm. communities and the ways in which like that should be our goal rather than sort of just kind of closing test score gaps. And so that seems to me a really um, like positive step um, to build on. And especially in the US where we have a very decentralized system, like there is no like magic lever that the secretary of education can pull that will fix all of this. Like it has to happen across different communities. It's about practice as well as policy. And so I think movements are the right strategies for uh, attacking that. And so I, I think we we're sort of starting down that road, which I think is good. I, I agree. And I, I, I sense too that our communities want to be connected to their schools. And I think for some time we kind of kept them at arm's length. And so this is the right time, I think, to really re-engage our communities and really address some of these equity challenges that we have faced and have, have persisted for so long. I'm also excited that I feel like our young people have a voice and they're they're making their their voices heard and, and known. And I think that's gonna help us, I think, lead into the future, so. I want to thank you both for this time, um, your your uh, support of our organization and the work, and then just your um, your contributions to the field and helping education leaders think differently and really helping to guide us in how we, you know, challenging our thinking in some areas. I really appreciate your work in that in that space. And so thank you so much for your significant contributions to the field. We appreciate you. Thanks for having Thanks so much us. Thanks for having us, Karen. Battelle for Kids thanks Dr. Sarah Fine and Dr. Zhao Mehta for this conversation about their important research and their impact on education transformation. The EdSpark 21 podcast is a production from Battelle for Kids. Battelle for Kids collaborates with school systems and communities to realize the power and promise of 21st century learning for every student. Visit bfk.org to learn more. The music heard in this podcast is On Fire by Sasha Inde. Copyright 2019 and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. All other content in this episode of EdSpark 21 is the intellectual property of Battelle for Kids. Other podcasts and blog posts from Battelle for Kids can be found at bfk.org.